I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. With Lee Lonsberry, from Utah's Capitol Hill to your schools, Texas, and all the breaking news. Hear it on Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry on KSL News Radio. Hey, welcome back to KSL News Radio. It's the final hour of today's episode of Live Mike, number 306. Just a, a, a few short episodes to go before you and I say goodbye. Uh, next Friday, remember, uh, we're in the midst of a, of a long goodbye. Next Friday, uh, you and I will spend our last two and a half hours together, and uh, then I'll head back east for a new job I've accepted uh, working in the United States Senate. I've repeated this a number of times, but if you're just hearing it for the first time, uh, I'll be working uh, in the office of uh, Utah Senator Mike Lee. Director of Communications will be uh, my title, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, bittersweet, certainly. Uh, it's, uh, it'll break my heart a bit to uh, say goodbye to you each day here on KSL News Radio. This past year and a half has been uh, one of the highest honors of my life. Uh, but yeah, you can find me on uh, social media or something like that. Uh, we'll still be friends, of course. Of course we'll still be friends. Uh, anyway, you know what it means now that it's uh, 2 o'clock. It's time for the top two at 2 o'clock, the top two stories of the day. The, the first one really has to do with a conversation which took place between uh, Utah Senator Mitt Romney and the the, the president's nominee for uh, Deputy Secretary of Education, Cynthia Martin, yesterday. Uh, Martin has worked as the superintendent of the San Diego Unified School District for uh, about eight years now, since 2013. And that, that conversation, uh, well, it, it stemmed from... It stemmed from a desire on the part of Senator Romney to see uh, public schools uh, opened, to return to some semblance of normalcy, uh, get education uh, back to happening in the classroom. He talked a lot about scientific evidence being, uh, or what should be, the driving motivation to get <laughs> to to get work done uh, uh, and to get these schools opened, as opposed to any other force which may be working on the the decisions on the part of districts whether or not to open, namely uh, pressures imposed by uh, certain teachers' unions. Uh, let me just let you hear directly from uh, Senator Romney. He said, uh, "We now have a year's worth of evidence on the safety of schools, and he can't understand why some public schools remain closed in the face." Of this evidence, but the scientific evidence is available to us. Well, I, you know, I wondered. This has been a year. You've got a lot of schools closed. How I don't understand how 
how they can continue to do that given the lack of evidence that would uh, uh, suggesting that that they are actually keeping their kids healthier by doing so. He continued uh, by saying he hopes that local schools will lean stronger on the national data that points to the safety of schools opening. Now, when the senator in this setting says national data, you know what he's referring to? He's referring to most recently an announcement from the CDC, which communicated uh, the ability for districts to relax the the protocols that they have had in place now for some time. Those same protocols that are keeping students outside of the classroom. The reason I bring it up is that and the reason I highlight it is because much of the data was collected right here in Utah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, between December of last year and in the early parts of this year, there were some 20 schools uh, here in Utah which were studied, which were examined, which were followed, and the students uh, and the transmission of the COVID virus between them uh, was studied and measured. And you know what was found? Very little transmission, nearly no transmission. In fact, in the schools where uh, the distance between students was, uh, was, was only three feet, on average, that showed nearly no difference in the transmission rate uh, of schools where the distance of six feet uh, was was still being observed. Oh, and those plastic dividers, yeah, they didn't do anything. Yeah, the plastic dividers turn out not to have uh, much to do with uh, mitigating the spread of the the virus at all. Uh, now, about the hybrid method. Earlier, we talked with. Uh, Dave Noriega, about this hybrid method, which we see still in uh, schools here in the state of Utah. And I'll tell you, outside of Utah, it is far more widely practiced than, than even here in the state of Utah. So those parents who are frustrated uh, here about, uh, you know, having to, you know, drive the kids to school for like two days a week and then arrange for child care or make other arrangements uh, for another two days a week or three, uh, just know that elsewhere it, it is much much worse. Uh, I've also seen research that says we're better to have schools open entirely as opposed to a hybrid system on a couple of days, off a couple of days, because uh, the back and forth means more exposure to more people. Uh, being full-time school would be less exposure. So I, I'm, I'm wondering why it is we still have schools closed in your district and around the, the country, uh, given the fact that, that scientific data doesn't suggest that there's an additional risk for teachers or students or the community by having them open. So there you have it. Uh, we'll see what that leads to. You know, ultimately, those uh, those nomination hearings are often opportunities to uh, to air uh, certain views like the one you heard here uh, shared by Senator Romney. And also, of course, the main purpose of the hearing, you get an opportunity to hear from the nominee themselves. Uh, this uh, this individual here, Cynthia Martin, again, has served as the superintendent of the San Diego Unified School District since 2013, uh, should she be confirmed as deputy secretary of education, uh, would have massive influence on uh, how the remainder uh, of our national reaction uh, to the COVID virus plays out uh, in the classroom. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's the first uh, big story of the day. What was the other one I wanted to touch on? Uh, Oh, yeah, there was... A, a press conference just this morning uh, hosted by, uh, well, well, you know what? There were two. There were two competing press conferences. There was the one which is weekly delivered by uh, the governor. Uh, governor Spencer Cox has been hosting uh, those meetings weekly. 
an opportunity for the press to engage him and for him and uh, those supporting his efforts right now to address the media. We've heard much from state epidemiologist Dr. Angela Dunn over the past year. Uh, today's was a little bit different, and it was taken. And you know what? It's a, it was a disservice that there was this overlap today because the the governor did something uh, pretty interesting that started uh, quite honestly on, on my program yesterday. Uh, but it was happening at the same time as. Uh, the president's first press conference. And so, like in this news business, you kind of have to uh, d- decide where you'll be focusing your energies. Well, what what most stood out to me in the in the governor's press conference uh, was the fact that he today, uh, he, along with his wife, received a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, if, if you Google around, you will find that, uh, for the most part, governors around this country have have already gotten their their vaccine. They got it a while back uh, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, it is the governor who, you know, wields the power to determine who's eligible when. And if you wield that power, you might as well say, oh, you know what? Me, me, uh, here's what we ought to do. I ought to be eligible right at the beginning so that I can set a good example. You'll hear much of that around the country. Uh, governor Cox had uh, a different attitude on that and, uh, in fact, did not receive uh, a COVID-19 vaccine until uh, his age and health categories uh, were made eligible. And that was uh, only when he, in consultation with uh, you know other medical officials here in the state, uh, decided that yesterday, the 24th of March, would be the day that all Utahns 16 plus were eligible for the vaccine. I didn't know I didn't know that he had been waiting. I didn't know that he was yet to receive his vaccine. Yesterday, while he and I were chatting here on this program, he let it be known that he uh, and his wife had just finally been able to uh, make an appointment. And it was uh, today that the governor, when all the rest of us are eligible, that he himself uh, ultimately uh, received the vaccine, setting now that example that many of the other governors uh, said they wanted to set uh, earlier in the process. I admire him for that. I think that's a, a good, slick, and classy move um, to, to, to wait and to uh, have his wife uh, waiting with him. Um, and that's, uh, that's what a leader does, right? Uh, anyway, uh, I admire him for that. We're going to take a break right now. When we return, we're going to have a little bit of fun for uh, the next half hour or so. On KSL.com right now, there is a bracket challenge. No, 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 not not the March Madness. All the Utah teams are out. What are we following March Madness anymore for? Uh, Don't tell Alex Curie I said that. The bracket challenge you'll find right now at (laughs) KSL.com is pitting takeout restaurants against one another. You can participate. I'll share with you the results where they stand right now. Uh, Plus, we'll welcome to the program... Uh, our resident foodie, uh, Josh Furlong. Is that, is, that, is that your title? No, it's not. You're a report. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Josh Furlong, nonetheless. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Nick Wyatt. Nick Wyatt will be with us after the break here on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind 
only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.